or seems to be built into the human species' very DNA. Many say we are now in the most peaceful time of human existence. Recent research has consistently shown trends towards fewer and less lethal wars over time. And yet, the news feeds are full of violence, of acts of war and person-on-person hate. If we are indeed in the most peaceful time period, why do millions and millions of humans live in a constant state of fear, even when they are hundreds of miles away from a war zone? Why do negative news feeds constantly promise a world that is nothing but evil when not only wars, but homicides and domestic violence against women and children, at least pre-COVID, have been declining for decades? Maybe the better question is, does the constant connection to consistently negative news feed our human addiction to fear? Welcome to Time Capsule Tales, a haven for those unsung heroes, the overlooked events, the forgotten wars, and the hidden secrets of ancient civilizations. With me, Jessa Briggs, we'll unseal the time capsule and embark on a journey scouring the nooks and crannies of the past. Today is a story of the first war on television that wiped away the patriotic glamour that covered the American civilians' memories of the world wars. This is how TV disillusioned America in the 1960s by bringing the Vietnam War to America's living rooms. But first, some background. And also a couple of extra things. I didn't mean for my first two episodes to be about wars. This isn't strictly a military history podcast at all, I promise. It just happened that two of my most thoroughly researched topics surrounded wars. But at least they're in different countries and different time periods, right? Next, in my last semester of college, I created a website around this topic. It's got a ton of pictures and videos because the visual effect of the TV on war is the thesis of this story. So go take a look at that and kind of peruse that while you're listening to me. You'll find a lot of language from this episode is pulled directly from that website. It's in the episode description and it'll be one of the only sources listed because there's a bibliography built into the website. And that's what I relied on for this episode. And there are a couple typos, but either way, I, it's, it is very thoroughly researched. The information is accurate, even if I can't always spell. So yeah, take advantage of that resource. Now, the Vietnam War. It's a very touchy subject in, some, in, in America. So I'm just going to get my potentially controversial thoughts out of the way, and hopefully you'll stick around to hear the interesting part of the story. We Americans are taught all throughout school that America has never lost a war, but um, we lost the Vietnam War. We went in to prove we were a powerful military power. We went in to avoid the consequences of President Dwight Eisenhower's domino theory, to be touched on later, and to make sure Vietnam didn't become communist. You know what happened? We lost almost 60,000 American lives and millions of Vietnamese and other Southeast Asian lives. So then, after a death toll of millions, the Americans noped out of the mess that they helped create, and North and South Vietnam were formally unified as the Socialist Republic of Vietnam under a communist government. So here's the laydown. America had two main goals going into Vietnam. Show their powerful military ally and stop Vietnam from becoming communist. Well, they didn't really make any progress throughout any of the war, left before it was over, and then Vietnam became a communist country anyways. Sounds like a lose-lose to me. That's my hot take. America lost the Vietnam War. And yes, I know we didn't technically declare war on Vietnam, 
but we were in the Vietnam War. And I think that tiny little technicality is really just a way for us to, to kind of ease our sore wounds. So it stings, it sucks, but it's true. America lost the Vietnam War. It's also true that we really didn't have any business getting involved there at all. And I am in no way at all lessening the sacrifices of the thousands of Americans that served in Vietnam. I want to make that very clear. Every single one of them deserves our utmost respect for braving the hellhole of a battleground that was Vietnam. I might be very critical of a lot of things that the U.S. does, but I will always, always be grateful for the soldiers that give their lives to fight for this country. It's really important especially as we go through today's episode, that you separate the people on the ground from the people running the show. The people on the ground made the sacrifice and had very little choice about what that sacrifice was for. The people running the show, basically the U.S. government, decided that this conflict was worth American lives, and so any hate that goes towards the Vietnam War should fall solely on them, in my opinion. And for me, it does. Okay, did we get all the uncomfortable stuff out of the way? We're all good. Let's get into the background. My timeline is mostly based on the one drawn up by history.com, and the link to that page is listed on my website's bibliography. So we're starting in 1947 with America's first involvement with the Vietnam conflict. Note that the Vietnam conflict is a very horrible story that stretches way earlier than where we're starting. But today's story is specifically about American civilians learning to hate their country's involvement in the Vietnam War because of TV. So this is just giving you the context of the war, and that's our meat and bones. So we're starting with the American involvement. In March 1947, President Truman announced America's new foreign policy, later known as the Truman Doctrine. In the simplest terms, it was an anti-communist stance. Surprising, right? <laughs> the Truman Doctrine was a thinly veiled threat to communist governments that if there was a viable country fighting against communism, the U.S. would involve themselves into the conflict to help that country fighting against communism. So three years after that, in 1950, the Soviet Union and China formally recognized the Communist Democratic Republic of Vietnam. This is important because it established Vietnam as its own country, not a colony of France. I, I say established loosely. It gave them a little bit of credit in the international community. I, I think that's maybe a better way to say that. Because basically, to really gain status as an independent and sovereign country, you have to have international recognition. A little side note, but it's why it was so important for the U.S. to get France to recognize them as a country during the Revolutionary War in the 18th century. Not only did we need like their guns and ships, but it also that recognition also gave the little hodgepodge of a British colonies international credence as they fought against the British Empire. With Vietnam, while the Soviet Union and China recognized the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, the U.S., an involved French ally, did not. By 1950, Vietnam was still considered by France and its allies as an Indochina colony. The French were trying to get back under control after they briefly lost it to the Japanese during World War II. So for the, for the next four years, between 1950 and 1954, the U.S. provided military assistance to France to fight against the quote-unquote communist threat of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. In April of 1954, the world was blessed with President Eisenhower's domino theory. Here's how he explained it. Quote, you have a row of dominoes set up, you knock over the first one, and what will happen to the last one is the certainty that it will go over very quickly. 
So you could have a beginning of a disintegration that would have the most profound influences, end quote. What he was really saying was that if Vietnam fell to communism, the evil vice of communism would spill across all of Southeast Asia, and then what would stop it from taking over the whole world? Okay, maybe that was a bit of an exaggeration for me, but really the point of the domino theory was to scare Americans into compliance. Eisenhower had to set the ground for an extended American presence in Vietnam, and he needed public support to make that a sustainable action. So when Eisenhower explained his domino theory in April of 1954, three years we've been assisting France. Then we get the domino theory from Eisenhower. So is it really a coincidence that Vietnam was split three months later? Just saying. Just just think about that. Because yes, in July of 1954, France realized that the government who gained power during the Japanese occupation in the early 40s was too strong to fight out. So during what was called the Geneva Accords, uh, and that was basically like a parlay between the current Vietnam government and France. And I believe America was there with them, helping them build out this, um, build out the ceasefire. I can't think of the right word. What is it called? Not a ceasefire. Um, build up, build out the Geneva Accords to stop the fighting. <laughs> so during these Geneva Accords, North and South Vietnam were established, the 17th parallel serving as a dividing line. So North Vietnam was the communist government's territory, and that concession ended a century-long rule of France and Indochina. So South Vietnam had a government established by the United States, and French troops, though under ceasefire, were stationed in South Vietnam. So this ceasefire and quote-unquote peace, peace treaty, that's probably the word I was looking for earlier. Anyway, so this quote-unquote peace of splitting Vietnam lasted less than a year. By 1955, North Vietnam had gone into South Vietnam wanting to reunify the country under a communist government. For nearly a decade, the United States stayed back, playing a behind-the-scenes role to the Vietnam War. But the war wasn't really going very well for South Vietnam. And then, on August 2nd, 1964, the USS Maddox was attacked by the North Vietnamese. And then, on August 4th, 1964... The North Vietnamese attacked the USS Turner Joy, allegedly. Let's go on a tangent for a second and talk about how the U.S. officially entered the Vietnam War, like put physical boots on the ground. So the U.S. Naval Institute has a great 2008 article about this written by Lieutenant Commander Pat Patterson of the U.S. Navy. He used a lot of information from U.S. documents that were declassified between 2005 and 2006. So most of the information about the Tonkin Gulf incident, which we're talking about now, comes from this article. And of course, it's linked in the episode description. So this article in the U.S. Naval Institute said that, quote, in early 1964, South Vietnam began conducting a covert series of U.S.-backed commando attacks and intelligence-gathering missions along the North Vietnamese coast. The U.S. Navy, meanwhile, had been conducting occasional reconnaissance missions farther offshore in the Tonkin Gulf, end quote. Between these two types of missions, because they were technically separate, but they were being conducted by the same side, right, by, by South Vietnam and its allies, they were trying to find information for South Vietnamese invaders to get the upper hand on their northern enemies. On August 2nd, 1964, the U.S. Navy patrol mission was being carried out by the USS Maddox, a U.S. destroyer, which is like a, a really big warship. 
So three North Vietnamese patrol boats did attack the USS Maddox that afternoon, but they didn't actually damage the destroyer, and the crew of the Maddox called for backup. That backup sunk one of the North Vietnamese boats and heavily damaged the other two. So while North Vietnam were the aggressor in that situation, they didn't cause any damage, and a lot of damage was caused to them. Quote, the next day, the Maddox resumed her patrol, and to demonstrate American resolve and the right to navigate in international waters, President Lyndon B. Johnson ordered the USS Turner Joy to join the first destroyer on patrol off the North Vietnamese coast, end quote. So that's how we've got both destroyers in the Gulf of Tonkin. Just now as I'm thinking about this, I know that now the law is, I, b- I believe it's 20 miles of the sea around your coast is your country's territory. And so I wonder if that was true back then, because if it was, then that means that they were not in it, that the USS Maddox was not in US water. It was in Vietnamese water. So that's, that's interesting if that was already the, the law. And also it might be five miles, not 20 miles. I'm talking off the cuff here. I, I know that you, as a country, you do own some of the sea right around your landform. Uh, let me know if it's five or 20 miles. And if you know when that law, that international agreement was made. I know it wasn't in the 17, 15th, 16th, or 1700s, because I studied pirates a lot, and there was a big issue of international waters and like who could fight pirates where and when, because nobody owned the sea. Anyway, so we're in August 4th of 1964, and we have two U.S. destroyers in the Gulf of Tonkin, which is near the North Vietnamese coast. Right, The USS Maddox, who had been attacked on August 4th while doing a reconnaissance mission. And then we've got the USS Turner Joy, who has just joined the Maddox. Then, quote, on the morning of the 4th of August, U.S. intelligence intercepted a report indicating that the communists intended to conduct offensive maritime operations in the Gulf of Tonkin, unquote. Throughout the afternoon and evening of August 4th, the two destroyers reported that they were engaging with enemy vessels. They said that they were surrounded on all sides by torpedo boats who were conducting offensive maneuvers, quote unquote. Apparently, there were sightings of torpedo wakes, enemy lights, and radar and surface contacts. There was also automatic weapons fire and torpedo attacks. So it was reported physical confrontation between the destroyers and the North Vietnamese vessels. So that made two attacks from North Vietnam against the United States within three days. By August 5th, President Johnson had called for retaliation, announcing over television, quote, repeated acts of violence against the armed forces of the United States must be met not only with alert defense, but with positive reply. The reply is being given as I speak to you tonight, end quote. Johnson's reply was commanding airstrikes on North Vietnamese patrol boat bases. This second attack on the U.S. destroyers also prompted Johnson to ask the U.S. Congress to retaliate even harder against North Vietnam besides the bombings by directly entering the U.S. into the Vietnam War. So technically, he asked to defend U.S. forces in Southeast Asia. But I mean, really, at this point, we're at tomato, tomato. It, you know, it all came down to the same thing. So Congress passed what was called the Tonkin Gulf Resolution with only two opposing votes throughout both the Senate and the House. So with flying colors, it passed. The resolution passed on August 7th with the goal, quote, to promote the maintenance of international peace and security in Southeast Asia, unquote. 
It gave President Johnson the power to, quote, take all necessary measures to repeal any armed attack against the forces of the United States and to prevent any further aggression, end quote, and said that, quote, the United States is therefore prepared, as the president determines, to take all necessary steps, including the use of armed force to assist any member or protocol state of the Southeast Asia Collective Defense Treaty requesting assistance in defense of its freedom, end quote. So this is actually a a pretty serious document because it gave the U.S. president unprecedented power over an armed conflict. How the U.S. is set up is the whole checks and balances system, right? So no one part of the government is supposed to be able to do everything by itself. When it comes to war, the president cannot declare war on another country. That declaration comes from Congress and Congress only. And as I understand, even though the president is the commander in chief, he still has to have permission from Congress to do like major military actions. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is the United States government is based on a system of checks and balances. So one person doesn't get to make all the decisions. They have to be approved by someone else. But with the sticky language of the Tonkin Gulf Resolution, Congress basically signed away their responsibility of declaring war on North Vietnam and basically said, you know what? Do whatever you got to do, LBJ. They weren't giving him the right to declare war on Vietnam. Because like I said at the very beginning, the U.S. technically never did declare war on Vietnam. But they basically said, you can do anything shy of that. Put all the people that you want in there. Use all the weapons that you want. Whatever. Do whatever you want to get the communists out of Vietnam. This resolution would be used clear up until 1971 by Johnson and Nixon to justify the U.S. president presence in Vietnam, a country that they had not declared war on, a country that they that had not actually shown unprovoked excessive aggression against the United States prior to the U.S. entering the war. Because guess what? There was no second attack on August 4th. Lieutenant Commander Patterson suggests that the crews aboard the destroyers on August 4th were inexperienced and their technology faulty. It was a stormy day, and it's possible both the crews and their radars misinterpreted storm chaos for enemy attacks. Either way, there was 100% no attack, and it has been 100% proven that there was enough conflicting slash confusing information at that time that the executive branch... In, in this in this specific instance, the U.S. President and Secretary of Defense should have used their brains and waited to clear up the information before retaliating. So what I mean by that is they might not have known 100% that there was or wasn't an attack, but there was so much conflicting information, they should have known not to act until they got confirmation of something or the other. And a lot of people believe that they didn't wait for more information because they wanted to use this second attack as a tool to convince Congress for their to get their support to go into Vietnam. They basically believed that Johnson and his def- and his Secretary of Defense McNamara knew that a second attack hadn't happened, but they knew that if it had, it would scare Congress enough to let them enter Vietnam. So they used this false narrative of a second attack to get the Tonkin Gulf resolution passed. So does that make sense? That part is not 100% like verified. We know there was no second attack. We don't know if Johnson and McNamara uh, knew that at the time, but it really seems like they did. And at the very least, 
they knew that there was some issues with the stories coming through from the USS Maddox and the USS Turner Joy. All right. I know that was a really long tangent, but it's important to me that we strip away the pretty simplicities of government dialogue. A lot of shady things went on during this war. And while we won't really get into them any more really in depth, I mean, I'm already getting too excited and spending half the show on the background of the war, but it's important to know American warfare isn't always righteous and it definitely doesn't always come about legally. So that's how the U.S. entered the Vietnam War officially, through misinterpretations and misleading Congress. Gold star for America. In February and March of 1965, two bombing operations, Operation Flaming Dart and Rolling Thunder, were launched by President Johnson. On March 8, 1965, 3,500 U.S. Marines landed on beaches near Da Nang, South Vietnam. They were the first combat troops to enter Vietnam. Four months later, 50,000 more troops were sent to Vietnam. The U.S. draft was set at 35,000 each month. August of 1965 saw the first major ground offensive by the U.S. forces, and in November was the Battle of La Drong Valley, the first large-scale battle involving U.S. soldiers. It killed nearly 300 Americans and injured 100 more. And then the North Vietnamese death toll was over 3,500. By 1967, two years into America's physical entrance into the war, U.S. troop numbers of Vietnam were at 500,000. This is also the year that huge war protests started to bloom around the country. In 1968, the Tet Offensive began. The Tet Offensive was a series of attacks carried out by North Vietnam in more than 100 cities and outposts across South Vietnam. Targets included the cities of Hue and Saigon. Saigon was back then the South Vietnam capital. The U.S. Embassy was also invaded. And it's called the Tet Offensive because Tet is a really special holiday in Vietnam that marks the start of the new lunar year. In the last three years, the U.S. troops had seen decreased fighting around this time of year as the Vietnam fighters paid respect to this holiday. So they were caught off guard by the 1968 Tet Offensive. And side note, remember when George Washington did this on Christmas of 1776? Just saying. This is why his- this is why history is important. If we don't learn, it just repeats itself. War doesn't stop for holidays, so... Anyway, I can get really scared then, because this is where the U.S. started a gradual withdrawal from the region. So the Tet Offensive is really where we're going to start getting into the bones of TV. My timeline is almost done, I promise. So in a 2023 U.S. Department of Defense article by Katie Lang, quote, the Tet Offended ended in early April of 1968 as a military defeat for the communists. The enemy failed to keep any captured territory. The Viet Cong's southern infrastructure was decimated. The South Vietnamese refused to embrace the North's ideals and thousands of enemy fighters died. At the same time, though, it was a huge loss for the U.S. cause. The shocking images coming out of Vietnam vividly showed the horrors of war, and many were shocked by the enemy's resilience. Tet made it clear that a U.S. victory in Vietnam was not imminent, and the American public support began to wane, unquote. Everything kind of goes downhill really fast for the U.S. from here. In November of 1968, the same year as the Tet Offensive, Richard Nixon won the election with the promise of restoring, quote-unquote, law and order and ending the draft. What he did instead, a year after his win, Nixon instituted the first draft lottery since World War II. 
So previously, the Vietnam draft pulled out random names, and the person had to report to a, a local draft board who decided if they would stay or serve. The lottery draft instead was determined by birth dates. So each day of the year was assigned to a lottery number, and any males born between 1944 and 1950 was eligible to fight if their birthday was their birthday's lottery number was pulled. This draft was supposed to get rid of the biases of the regular draft, where lo local draft board participants could be bribed, um, etc. Either way, the fact that Nixon promised to end the draft and then a year later instituted a lottery draft, that sucks. That's just him, you know, reneging on a promise. So between 1970 and 1972, the Nixon administration gradually reduced the numbers of U.S. forces in Vietnam. U.S. troop numbers peaked in 1969 at 549,000. By 1972, the number had dropped to 69,000. By 1973, Nixon did finally do good on his promise. On January 27th, the Selective Service, who is in charge of the draft, announced the end of the draft. That same day, Nixon ended direct U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War by signing the Paris Peace Accords. It would still take us two years to fully move out of Vietnam. April 1975 was the infamous fall of Saigon. The capital of South Vietnam was seized by communist forces. The government of South Vietnam surrendered. I'm sure you've all seen that famous black and white photo of the helicopter at the top of the building with a surge of people trying to get onto it. That's a picture of the fall of Saigon. It's a U.S. mass evacuation of U.S. civilians as South Vietnamese refugees during the fall of Saigon. And you can find that picture on my website, along with a lot of others that we'll talk about here and that we won't talk about here because there's there is just so many. So that was April 30th, 1975. In July of 1975, North and South Vietnam were reunified 21 years after the initial split and renamed as the Socialist Republic of Vietnam, ruled by a communist government. The American death toll was over 58,000. North Vietnam lost about 1.1 million fighters, South Vietnam 250,000 soldiers. More than 2 million civilians were killed on both sides of the war. All right, I know, that was a lot. Like I said at the beginning, the Vietnam War was ugly. It was brutal, it was long, and it was ruthless. So many people died, in my opinion, because America got involved for no good reason. I'm not saying that if America hadn't been involved, the communist shift would have been bloodless. I do think the death toll would have been a lot lighter. Less civilians, no Americans. But I can say that with the hindsight that we lost the war. We didn't beat communism in Vietnam, so there's no the ends justify the means argument here. It's easy to hate the Vietnam War 50 years after it ended. I, it, it's a lot harder to say that it's not worth it when you're still trying to fight for the end. So what about during the Vietnam War, when the government could still call on the righteous U.S. cause of keeping communism out of Southeast Asia? The Vietnam War was actually originally a popular movement seen as America fulfilling their duty to expand democratic ideals. That's how we got in there in the first place. The U.S. government was able to kind of spin the narrative so that both the general public and Congress thought that it was a good idea to get involved. As the conflict dragged on and Americans saw more and more casualties, as the Vietnam War violence was displayed in every American living room through the new mass media of TV, 
As the quote-unquote credibility gap widened and more Americans began distrusting the government, Vietnam became one of the most protested Cold War initiatives. Go look at the website I created for this topic. Again, I'm going to plug this throughout the whole episode. But under the background section is the Vietnam War in context. This talks a lot about the Vietnam War as a Cold War initiative and how all the other social and cultural changes between the 1950s and the 1970s all factored into the government's decisions around Vietnam and the anti-war movements. We really don't have time to go into it in this episode. I can tell this is already going to be really long, but it is fascinating. And then I also want to point out, because I know that it's not in my script a whole lot, as it, nearly as much as it should be, but when the government was originally garnering support for America going into Vietnam, th- one of their big talking points was that it was going to be a quick victory, that they were going to be in and out, they were going to defeat the communists, and, you know, bada bing, bada bong. Bada bing, bada bang. <laughs> uh, but that didn't happen. And the way that it dragged on, that really was a big factor in America, in the American public turning against the war. So I just want to put that out there in case I don't bring it up again. Know that that is kind of an underlying factor in everything that we talk, talk about. For now, we're going to detour into part two of this episode, the rise of TV. So take everything you just learned about Vietnam and the Vietnam War, the sketchiness and the death tolls, all of that. Put a pin in it, mark your notes, we'll come back to it. But I need a break because the Vietnam War makes me sad. TV, however, is awesome. So let's talk about how it took over America. A U.S. News and World Report of 1995 said, quote, The biggest of the new forces in American life today is the television. There has been nothing like it in the post-war decade or in many decades before that, perhaps not since the invention of the printing press. Even radio, by contrast, was a placid experience, end quote. And this is what I meant by the TV taking over America. In 1949, there were fewer than one million households with with television sets. By 1955, two out of three U.S. families owned TV sets. That equaled 32 million homes. That's six years and a 31 million increase. That's insane. So even though radio was an incredible invention, it was also a slow rise. This was like a massive boom where all of a sudden and like the decade after World War II ended, just everyone got a TV. So the TV had been in production and design and whatever since the 1920s, but then World War II stopped it from really expanding very much in its first two decades of life. And then once that war ended, we hit the age of consumerism. And oh boy, did America love to spend their money on television. I want to do a quick numbers rundown, right? 1949, less than 1 million households. 1955, six-year span, 32 million households. Then 1960, another five years, 46 million households. What these numbers represent is the TV going from a novelty for the rich to a necessity for the everyday American. By 1960, 90% of Americans watched about five hours of TV every day. So by the 1960s, television had become a commonplace appliance in the American household. It held not only the main source of cheap entertainment, but it was a major distributor of information. 
dramatic moments in American politics played out live in American living rooms for the first time ever, such as the Nixon-Kennedy debates of the 1960 presidential election, the Johnson-Goldwater debates of the 1964 presidential election, and the 1968 Democratic Convention. And then, of course, we had the last decade and a half of the Vietnam War. In short, this new mass media had taken over America. Not only was the visual aspect eye-opening, but it also put people in time with important events, even if they stayed at home. This developed an entirely new relationship between the public and the media and the public and their leaders, because the leaders were thrust into the, the limelight a lot more than they were used to. They were answering the whole nation on the fly, and and that left them open to a lot more critique than times past. And the Vietnam War showcased this perfectly. The war in Vietnam was the first major American conflict to be televised. For the first time, people could watch the horrors of war from their own homes. Not only did this affect more morale and opinion, but in many cases it contributed to a failing confidence in the government, as the government's statements started contradicting news reports. As our timeline, and especially the Gulf of Tonkin incident shows, the government was trying really hard to, to, to control the conversation around Vietnam. They didn't want the public to know what was really going on because the, cover, the government knew that they would lose public support, which they did. So what this led to was actually a lot of biased reporting around Vietnam. There are four main reasons for that, and we'll go more into depth for all of them. But those are, first, TV broadcasting networks had to create stories the American population cared about to keep their numbers up. A side note, this is just one of the many ways the Vietnam War intersected with the new consumer society of the 1960s. Really fascinating topic. Second, information was not reliably available. The government was really close, closed-lipped about everything going on, so reporters mostly depended on secondhand sources. Of course, there were journalists on the ground in Vietnam, and the government sometimes released real information, but it wasn't streamlined. Third, visual broadcasting and quote-unquote visual facts often distorted events and didn't allow for objective reporting. The violent, brutal images coming out of Vietnam provoked a lot of emotion and didn't allow for a whole lot of critical analysis. Then finally, news broadcasting is an entirely selective process. In every stage of preparing a news broadcast, decisions are made of what to include and what to be left out, what to emphasize and what to repress. These decisions often lead to bias, whether they're un unintentional or intentional. Now let's dig into these, each of these a little bit deeper. And if you want to follow along on the website, it's the Bringing the War to America's Living Room page. And I've got pictures from the war all along the page with the information. Okay, number one, broadcasting and consumer culture. The Vietnam War as a quote-unquote American story. During the Cold War, including the war in Vietnam, American journalism followed the basic values of eth ethnocentrism, which kept all of the reporting focused on the home base. If it did not involve America and or Americans, it would not make it on the popular TV news broadcasts. Thus, the conflict in Vietnam did not start to make headlines and daily TV news until combat troops first entered Vietnam in 1965. But then, from then on, the coverage of Vietnam had to acclimate to popular opinion. That meant the newsfeed continuously veered to the negative side as the anti-war movement had uh, heated up. 
An article titled The Media and the Vietnam War by Clarence Wyatt said, quote, the journalists were motivated not by political or ideological bias, but rather by the need to satisfy the imperatives of an American news industry, end quote. It's all about the money, baby. Number two, the government classifies. From the 1930s onwards, as the role of the federal government and Cold War pressures both increased, the government started imposing classifications of information. In Vietnam, this effectively stonewalled journalists for many years. Meant to keep the government in control of Vietnam's image, it actually only served to alienate the press and therefore receive negative news coverage, and it cost the government the people's trust. That same media in the Vietnam War article I talked about earlier It explained that, quote, the degree to which the public has confidence in the information it receives, whether from the government, the military, and news organizations, greatly affects the degree to which it will support any military conflict, end quote. So if the public feels like they're being lied to or being tricked in any way, they're going to want the military conflict shut down because it's not going to feel like a worthy cause. So in 1962, this stonewalling process of journalists, of Vietnam journalists, solidified with cable, I think, 1006 or 1006. This was a diplomatic message from the State Department sent out on February 21st, 1962. It told all of the officials in Vietnam that the only thing that they could tell reporters was that this was a South Vietnamese affair. This was in direct contradiction to what the officers were seeing, which is that Americans were spearheading the war and our our involvement was only multiplying by the day. So Cable 1006 did two things. It fractured the idea that the media should tell the truth because the Americans stationed in Vietnam were given a story to tell and were directed not to deviate. Next, it made sure that the Americans at home were denied the whole story. They were unaware of America's ever-growing role in Vietnam and became increasingly reliant on the storytelling narrative of the news. So if the news said that the war was a South Vietnamese conflict, that the Americans were just helping out, the U.S. citizens couldn't do much except, except that. Which brings us on to number three, visual facts and visual reporting. Television, America's new favorite mass media, only exacerbated this biased news problem with visual reporting. Now remember, by 1960, 90% of Americans watched around five hours of TV a day. This is where they were getting all of their information, and the image stories they were given were shocking and often reported out of context. Working in alignment with news agency agendas and the consumer's wants, news reports highlighted the violence and neglected any stories of goodwill, leaving no room for unbiased or CL-size reporting. And I'm not trying to say that there was a bright side of Vietnam. I've reiterated that I think this was a terrifying conflict that America had no business being in. And we know from the veterans that American soldiers suffered unimaginably out there. So we can only imagine what the Vietnamese civilians were going through. But it is also always important to to tell all sides when you're reporting. Things like heroic acts or moments of mercy, those never made it to America's screens. Either way, this visual reporting absolutely started the massive anti-war movement. 
CBS News Director in Washington during this time, William Small, said, quote, When television covered its first war in Vietnam, it showed a terrible truth of war in a manner new to mass audiences. A case can be made, and certainly should be examined, that this was cardinal to the disillusionment of Americans in this war, the cynicism of many young people towards America, unquote. Why? Because like I said at the beginning, we humans are addicted to fear. We've evolved to avoid the bad, even if that means tuning out the good. It's this evolutionary preference to fear so that we can avoid potential harm that sneaked its way into consumer culture in the 1960s and really now forms the foundation of American media. We humans can't help it. We love fear. News agencies knew this in the 1960s and cameramen were were literally told to shoot bloody in Vietnam. TV had to give the people what they wanted, and that was something visually visceral, something that reinforced their distrust of the government and their hate for the war, especially after the Tet Offensive of 1968. And then fourth, the selection process. What goes into a news story and what is deliberately removed? The shortcoming of the subjective reporting is multifold. The quote-unquote visual facts of TV meant that the most visually compelling stories were the ones chosen. Time restraints led producers and editors to oversimplify often quite complicated conflicts and did not allow for the Vietnam War to be viewed as a continuous struggle. Instead, it was viewed as two to three minute segments of pain and peril. Historian Michael Mitchell said that, quote, the overall picture of the war in Vietnam presented by the network was incomplete, far from accurate, yet probably inevitable, end quote. And I mean, he's right. There was so much going on in the Vietnam War, but the news only had tiny segments available for them, and they had numbers to hit. At at some point, I really think it was a lot less about really reporting on the war and more about repeating content that these news networks knew would make people tune in. Okay, so we all know the news is biased. It's not that much of a shocker that it's been that way for half a century and or way longer. So I hear you. Let's talk about why it matters. The Terror of War, or the Road of Trang Bang of 1972, is the example I use on my website, and I'm going to reiterate it here. It's one of the most famous images from the entire Vietnam War era. It's a black and white image. There's a road with what looks like a field on the left. An ominous dark cloud is billowing into the sky in the background, but you can't quite tell if it's smoke or clouds or something else. And it seems like there's a building at the base of the clouds. On the road are four people. At the front is a young boy, maybe 10 years old. He's in a button-up short and little shorts, maybe even boxer shorts. He's running and he's terrified. His mouth has morphed into a scream. Just behind the boy's left shoulder is a toddler, who looks like they're only dressed in a shirt. The toddler is turned backwards, facing the billowing cloud like they're trying to understand what's going on. On the right side of the photograph is a young girl. She couldn't be older than eight. Her bare foot is in a puddle in the road. She's got her arms spread to her sides, almost like wings. She is completely naked, and she is screaming, but her scream looks panicked painful, where the boys looks heartbreakingly sad. Behind the three Vietnamese children on the road, looking down at the road, a big gun in one hand is an American soldier. 
It's a bone-chilling picture. It's horrendous to look at. Your eyes are immediately pulled to this naked baby girl because she looks so scared, like she's in so much pain, and you just want to cover her up and protect her. It's a picture of children running after a napalm bomb was dropped by the South Vietnamese on the village of Trang Bang. Napalm is a gel-like substance used to create bombs. It's a vol volatile petrochemical and is often referred to as liquid fire. Napalm was used in Vietnam as both a psychological weapon and as a literal weapon. A really common action in, the, in Vietnam was burning down entire villages with flamethrowers filled with napalm. And then later, napalms, because they were much more effective in spreading this unfightable flame. And these napalm bombs were known to destroy up to 2,500 square yards. These napalm fires are so much worse than regular fire, both to humans and to objects. For objects, there's no way to put out the fire except to smother it, which makes it incredibly difficult to fight. Because if your whole village is on fire, how are you going to smother the whole village? For humans, when you're on fire from napalm, your skin is covered with this sort of tar-like substance that sticks to you and melts your flesh. Napalm causes wounds so deep, they're too deep to heal. Between 1963 and 1973, 388,000 tons of napalm were dropped on Vietnam. First, it was used in, in flamethrowers, like I was saying, which at least allowed for some accuracy of where the napalm was going. But by 1972, when this photo, the terrors of war, was taken, combatants had chosen to drop napalm bombs with Sky Raider airplanes, which did not allow for accuracy. That meant that there was way too much room for civilian casualties. And that's what's happening in this picture. Civilians, babies, little children are running from their village that just went up in flames from a napalm bomb. The little girl in this picture, her clothes had started on fire and it was so hot that she tore her clothes off to stop it from burning her. And she still received third degree burns on her back from the napalm. No one who saw this picture on the front page of the New York Times in 1972 knew that the little girl would be okay, that she would live. What they did know was that this was a picture of three innocent children crying, running away from their village that was burning with infamous poisonous napalm fire. This picture illustrates the impact of visual reporting. The image of crying naked children running in and of itself will make people turn against the war. Now, put that under the story of America's allies dropping a napalm bomb on a civilian center, and that's what caused the children to start running? Absolutely devastating for the war's reputation in America. And then one other picture that can be directly linked to turning American opinions against the Vietnam War is Eddie Adams' The Saigon Execution from 1968. So that is about four years before the terrors of war, and I chose to talk about the terrors of war first because America had a much stronger reaction to that picture. And they were already tired from being in Vietnam for over a decade. And they were already starting to feel kind of icky about America being in the conflict. So seeing burning children really centered their hate for American presence in Vietnam. So that's why I talked about that one first. But this 1968 photo was like a whisper in the beginning that made the American public do a double take, right? It made them really think about what the conflict was about and, is, and if it was really eth ethical for Americans to be fighting it. 
we did think that it was a good idea in the beginning. We thought that it was our duty to help spread democratic ideals. So the Saigon execution photograph was taken on the 1st of February, 1968. And that's less than two weeks into the Tet Offensive, the surprise attack from the North Vietnamese on the South. The title of the photo is much more self-explanatory than Nick Oot's The Terrors of War. In the Saigon execution photograph, the South Vietnamese chief of national police, so an American ally, has his pistol trained on the head of a suspected Viet Cong official on a street in Saigon, the capital of South Vietnam. For context, the Viet Cong was a part of the communist movement in Vietnam that worked with North Vietnam against the U.S. and South Vietnam. Sorry, I just said Vietnam like 17 times, but that's how it is. And then the Viet Cong, they were... They weren't technically a part of the North Vietnamese army. They were more like undercover slash infiltration soldiers. So they were in in South Vietnam and they often fought with guerrilla warfare, which is like the hiding behind trees and setting traps, that kind of unorganized sort of warfare. Seconds after Eddie Adams snapped this picture of the South Vietnamese official holding his gun to the suspected Viet Cong's head, the South Vietnamese official fired executing the suspected Viet Cong man in the middle of the street in the South Vietnamese capital. Photographer Eddie Adams reported that after the shooting, the South Vietnamese official approached him and said, quote, they killed many of my people and yours too, end quote. And then he walked away. Back in America, this image flashed across living room TVs. This ruthless execution made Americans second guess the ethics of the Vietnam War, and more specifically, their own country's involvement. This time period in the war, less than four years into America putting troops on the ground, this is the time the attitudes towards the war turned towards the negative. But surely pictures and TV reports couldn't do do that on its own, right? Well, actually, yes. And there's a couple of reasons why. The first is really straightforward. The government was getting caught out in in their information filtering. As early as 1965, when the first combat troops landed in Vietnam, a schism started growing between officials, official information from the White House and unofficial information from the media and visual reporting. So the White House would release messages and make promises to put a positive spin on the, conf- the conflict. And then the news would release photos like the terrors of war or the Saigon execution or any other number of pictures or videos um, like the ones that you can find on my website. And it was clear to Americans that their government was at the very best trying to spin the story. And at worst, they were outright lying to them. The second influence of these TV reports is literally about the visuals. Nothing else. Because war is terrible. Of course war is terrible. There has never been a war fought in the world at any time in history that hasn't been terrible. But it wasn't until the 1960s that for the first time, those left at home were not just imagining what was happening in the battlefield. The average person was no longer relying on worded news reports meant to infuse optimism into the public. Instead, they were watching the war unfold in their living rooms with all of the gore and terror. These pictures, the videos, all that visual media came out that came out of Vietnam was everything that the public wasn't supposed to know and what the TV told us anyways. And when I say that, I mean, there were some horrible images of like battlefields and aftermath. So literally a field full of bodies. You have like one photograph on my website. 
is a bunch of soldiers waiting for an evacuation helicopter. And you can tell that some of them are dead. Like, they are horrendous. They're really horrible. It's also important to point out that not only was the Vietnam War TV's quote-unquote first war, but Vietnam was also a different type of war, something totally unfamiliar to American fighters. The terrain and fighting styles were alien and absolutely deadly. Americans at home watched the difficult, slow-going, unorganized combat in jungles, fields, and villages. They saw the pictures and heard the reports of Vietnamese civilian deaths, and all of these worked together to turn the American public against the Vietnam War. So why does it matter that the TV was such a big deal in the Vietnam War, right? Especially now in 2023, where we're trying to do quick math, 70 years the U.S. putting troops on the ground in Vietnam? Why does it matter? Well, it's more than just a story. Because, because television didn't just guide public opinion, it also guided U.S. policy, and it still does today. With the TV, the government lost a lot of its grandeur. It fractured the, in- the inherent trust the public had in the government. So by the 1960s, the government was being watched carefully by the public with distrustful, disillusioned eyes. No longer could the government operate like they used to, where they could control the media and spin the message to report however they wanted to. Instead, they had to contend with mass visual reporting and carefully monitor public opinion before they made any moves or released any statements. This was true in in the 1960s when it started, and it's even more true today with the explosion of the internet and social media. The government at least I would like to think, is a lot more accountable for their actions. And they know that. They know that more people are watching than they did before the explosion of the TV. The Vietnam War changed the idea of war for America for a few different reasons. The American premise for involvement was sketchy at best, downright unethical at worst. The warfare was unorganized, slow, and bloody, the jungle terrain drastically different from the trenches of the world wars. And most of all, the Vietnam War was the TV's first war. There was no more sugarcoating reporting on the righteousness of warfare. Anything and everything graphic coming out of Vietnam was slapped onto the TV, broadcasted to millions and millions of homes around America every night. There's a thought I want to float by you as we end. From Clarence Wyatt's article, The Media and the Vietnam War, quote, the American people have a right to expect their government, their military, and yes, their press, to provide honest information. But the answers regarding right or wrong, the worthiness and effectiveness of the sacrifice of blood and treasures rests ultimately with a wary, skeptical citizenry, end quote. Very little censorship occurred in those early days of TV. Americans saw everything. Was that our fault? The American public demand for truthful reporting, the human addiction to fear, feeding the brutal and negative newscasting. After all, we established that news broadcasting networks dictated what aired on their channel based on the consumer's demand. So did we perhaps forget in that last decade of the Vietnam War that the bloody images were actually people and not just symbols of why America shouldn't be in Vietnam? Because at the end of the day, really? We ask for the news we get. And I think it's important to consider that maybe the brutality of the Vietnam War was exploited by America, by the media, to get news, by the anti-war movement to further their cause. 
And maybe we should double check the kind of media we're consuming and why. I'm not saying we shouldn't be told about the horrible things in the world. We have to be informed. We have to know what's going on. I am saying we should question how and why we're being told. All right, folks, that's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. Sorry again for the two more episodes in a row. And I'm trying to think of something light for next week, like the first pop boy band or something. If you have a favorite topic in history that isn't often told, please share it. Email me at timecapsuletales.podcast at gmail.com. And I will totally name drop you and your suggestion if, if you want me to. If you enjoyed this story, please rate, like, leave a comment or a five-star review. I'm really trying to get this off the ground, so every interaction helps. Also, follow the podcast Instagram, timecapsuletales.historypod. I post updates and episode resources. For this episode specifically, take a look. Um, although I'm going to really have to be careful what pictures so that Instagram doesn't get mad at me. The Instagram might be full of just TV pictures, but definitely go on the website to see some of the visual reporting that came out of the 1960s and 70s. But either way, I hope to see you on Instagram and the website, all those places, and I will see you next week as we open another time capsule for a niche tale in history. Bye.